Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. And what an interview we have for you today. Two-time Olympic hammer thrower from the US, Gwen Berry, talking about her career in the sport. A, A very interesting and unique career. Not often do you associate the sports of basketball with hammer throwing. And somehow we're going to make a segue how Gwen started off as a basketball player and ended up as a two-time Olympian in hammer throwing. I always like to go from point A to point B by doing different tangents in the middle, and you're going to find that out today. It's a, it's a fascinating chat here learning about that. We go into a bit of detail about the collegiate system in the US and whether that's a help or a hindrance when it comes to American athletes on the world stage. There's a lot of talk here too about Americans at the Olympics in general, finding out what it's like being a part of Team USA, a, a team that is almost expected to top the medal tally and everyone's almost expected to come home with a medal, what that is like competing at an Olympic Games. And we, of course, learn a little bit more about Gwen and her fight for social justice and everything else that has come from uh, everything that happened in the lead-up to the Tokyo Olympics and afterwards, too. This is a thoroughly in-depth, insightful interview that I know you're going to get a lot out of, and I'm very excited to bring it to you right now. Here is our chat with two-time Olympic hammer thrower Gwen Berry. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium. We spoke to Matt Denny a couple of weeks back about discus, and and Matt had been involved a little bit in the sport of hammer throw before, but it sort of focused more on discus. So we haven't really spoken to an athlete on this show about hammer throw. This is a sport that has always fascinated me. It's always a, a unique sport that I love to watch whenever it's an Olympic Games, a World Championships, Commonwealth Games, anything along those lines. And we have a, a guest on the show today. When you think of hammer throw, you think of one of the, the best in the world. She's thrown the sixth best time in the history of hammer throw. She's a world record in the sport of weight throw, which is another sport which I'm intrigued to find out about as well. A two-time Olympian, a Pan American Games gold medalist and just somebody that I have been wanting to talk to for a long time on the show to learn more about her amazing career. It's a pleasure to welcome the one, the only Gwen Berry to Off the Podium. Gwen, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to see you and speak to you today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I'm here. So yeah, yeah we, <laughs> I'm excited we, we, to be here today. I'm glad. That's the correct answer. You're off to a good start. We'll tick that one off the yeah. list that, uh, that you got the first test right. But, I mean, hammer throw is just, as I said, it's a, it's a sport that's it's always fascinated me because it's one of these sports that I, I look at and I'm like, why do people want to do hammer throw? It's kind of one of these ones where it's like, how, how on earth does that come into the mind? So how, how do you get started in hammer, Gwen? So what's crazy is um, the the crazy thing about hammer throwing is absolutely no one knows about it until for us in America, until you get to college. Um, It's not allowed in high school, not allowed in grade school. Obviously, um, few, few clubs have it um, as an option before college. But, yeah, no one knows about it. So I think it's like worse than the stepchild of track and field (laughs) in uh, all of the events. I got into hammer throwing, of course, um, you know, being recruited into college and being a multi-event athlete and then seeing it. And then, you know, my former coach, you know, he begged me to try it. And then I just got good at it in like, you know, probably like three months just because of my athleticism. Um, and yeah, so I just kind of stuck with it. It's crazy. Why Why did your coach beg you sort of? What, what were you doing at the time that kind of led to your coach going, you know, come on, Gwen, give this a go. We really want you to try this. So um, I got recruited into college as a multi-event athlete. 
And everybody knows in the multi event, you have to throw the javelin and you have to throw the shot put. So when I would practice with the throwers, um, you know, the coach at the time, he said, you know, you could probably be good at this event. You know, you're a bigger multi-event athlete. You probably won't lose any weight and you won't be world-class as a multi, but you could be world-class as a thrower. So I was just like, ah, whatever, you know, I don't know you, so I'm not going to try this because I don't know what it is. And at the time, you know, I was, I was, I'm always, I'm a smaller thrower, but I'm a bigger multi. I, I've always been like in between. I was, I was a big jumper, but a small thrower. So I really didn't want to try it because all the girls were stronger than me. You know, they thrown in high school, you know, we had, you know, state, state medalists and state champions. Um, and so I just tried to stay away from it. But I reminded him of a former thrower he had at a different college. So he just pressured me and pressured me. And then he talked to my high school coach. And so my high school coach sat me down and he was like, Gwen, you probably could be a world-class thrower. So just try it. So I tried it. And after three months, I literally almost made the junior Olympic team throwing the wow. hammer throw. So I was just like, ah, oh, okay, I guess I'll stick with it. Just yes, maybe. Yeah, it's sort of something you yeah. might be good at. So kind of, yeah. kind of going <laughs> along that lines, which sort of, Going through all these different events that you were already doing and to kind of get the, you know, the, the ticket into college that way, was, was this something that sort of back when you first started this athletic career that an Olympics was an ambition? Was this kind of, you know, going through those different sports to try and see what you would be good at to maybe have that future goal of making the Olympics? You know, I never considered making the Olympics only because um, I played basketball in high school. Like that was my main sport. I was really a really, really good basketball player. But I think because of my height and because of the position I wanted to play, not a lot of schools were looking at me because even though I was a great basketball player, I wasn't like an all-star. And so, um, you know, I decided to do track and field to make that my primary sport because, um, one, it was not a team event, a team sport. And um, in high school, I kind of grown to hate team sports only because I felt like everyone had to be on one accord. And I knew that my passion and my dedication was different than a lot of people that I played with. So um, I pursued track and field. And even, you know, when I was in, high, uh, in college doing track and field, um, I didn't think that I would ever be an Olympian. You know, I love to watch the Olympic Games, but I just did not see that stuff, for, see that for myself. So I remember my senior year in college throwing the hammer, um, I finally broke 70 meters. And my coach at the time told me like, if you really, really stick to this, you can probably make the Olympic team. And so um, I graduated in 2011, the Olympic trials was to, you know, the very next year. So I trained for that next year and I was number one going into the trials and I ended up being um, the team alternate for the Olympic games. So I was just like, wow, you know, I guess I, I, I guess I see what I could probably be. I could probably be an Olympian. So I stuck with it. Kind of a quick journey and turnaround there. And all of a sudden you're probably going back to your coach going, okay, well, yeah, you were right to pester me. I think kind of, you know, this is kind of working yeah. right now. Yeah, for sure. Which I have to admit that, you know, hearing coming from a basketball background into track, I mean, again, it's, I, I always love hearing, Gwen, kind of from athletes who come from a sport that really isn't overly related to the sport they end up going to the Olympics in. I don't, I don't think of basketball players becoming Olympic hammer throwers. It's kind of, it's a unique <laughs> transition. I mean, when you first pick up that hammer and, you know, have a, have a go at it, like, are you thinking like, well, what the hell am I doing now? How did I end up shooting hoops for, you know, one point? Now I'm here, I'm throwing this thing. Oh, for sure. And not, and not even that, because what's crazy is I did basketball, I did track and field and I was a jumper. So I essentially went from a basketball player, a triple jumper, into a hammer thrower. I believe I'm still the only athlete in history that has ever won a conference indoor championship in the weight throw, the shot put, and I placed fifth in the triple jump. So wow. I was literally a multi-event athlete, like, to the core. And, you know, after a while, they didn't need to score points to the triple jump anymore, so then I just stuck to hammer throwing. But literally my sophomore year of college, indoor, I won the shot put, I won the weight throw, and I placed fifth in the, in the uh, triple jump. Crazy. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> insane. I mean, I, I mentioned Matt yeah. Denny before. He was, he was talking about when we spoke to him about how, at least in an Australian perspective, it was rare for somebody to be doing a discus and hammer, and he was doing shot at the same time too. And, I mean, it's just it's crazy to kind of think kind of that on paper maybe they kind of are related but at the same time I, I can't imagine throwing a shot and then a hammer besides the weight of it is even closely related 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's just incredible to incredible to think that. Just just quickly on on weight throw. Can you explain this to me, Gwen? Because I was looking this up, and this seems like an almost very uniquely American sport. I mean, what is weight throw? How would you describe that to somebody who's never heard of it, like me before? So the weight throw is really, really uniquely American only because of the collegiate system. Um, Because of the collegiate system, um, instead of doing hammer throw outdoors, the the weight throw is an indoor event. So it is shorter and it is heavier, of course, so it doesn't go as far as a hammer would. So that, of course, you can be in an indoor facility. Um, it's something that the collegiate system created just, you know, to generate more points, um, keep the throwers throwing, keep them in shape, because then you will only have, honestly, the shot put indoor. So um, just to give throwers another event, the collegiate system created this thing. And, of course, it goes back into, like, the um, the Highland Games. You know, they, th- they throw something like the weight. And so it kind of just, like, came from that. And you are the world record holder in the sport of weight throw which uh, yes. I mean, that's a pretty cool title to have that you can say I'm a, I'm a world record holder. And, and, and even if it's a sport that kind of, again, you've got to explain to people, it's still, you're a world record holder. You can't get that taken away from you until someone breaks it. It's for sure. So I think, again, me being a smaller thrower, I am the um, only person that's ever broke, um, what, 83 feet in the weight throw at wow. um, under 200 pounds. Wow. So most weight throwers are 200 pounds over. Um, yeah, I'm the only one that's done that. So even if it's broken, I'm sure it should be broken pretty soon. There's a lot of good girls coming up in the game. So, you know, that'll, that'll go, but, um, they won't be under 200 pounds. So I'll keep that. <laughs> you will. That's, that's always yours there, which, I mean, is it sort of a sport that hammer throwers are the ones that kind of are doing that is, or like, can you sort of have those, those multi-athletes who kind of give it a, give it a bit of a go as well? Um, it's for sure for hammer throwers, um, just for throwers in general. I don't think any multi-event athletes would ever do the weight throw. I've never seen it. So, again, it's just something to keep the hammer throwers in shape um, so that they won't, you know, just have nothing to do indoor. I in for, term- Yeah, nothing to do before outdoor. Sorry. In terms of the, the hammer, how, how heavy is, is a hammer that you are throwing? So the hammer that I throw is 8.9 pounds. That is the female's competition weight. The men's competition weight is a seven kilogram pound, so it's essentially 16 pounds. Wow, geez. And like when you first pick one up, are you sort of surprised at the weight? Is it kind of something that you sort of just go, okay, this isn't what I was expecting? I mean, kind of do you remember the first time you ever picked one up? Um, the first time I picked up a hammer, I was just like, yeah, this is going to be hard and I really don't want to do it. <laughs> because even though it wasn't heavy, it was just the fact of throwing something that is away from your body. So you literally have this ball, then you have a string, then you have a handle. So you're literally manipulating something that is away from your body through a string. So it's it's the weirdest, it's the weirdest event, hammer throwing and, and um, pole vaulting are the only two events in track and field where you are manipulating something away from your body, but you still have to manipulate the implement. So essentially you can argue that those are the two hardest events in track and field besides, you know, the 400 hurdles, maybe the 1500, maybe, but yeah, it's, they're pretty, pretty technical events. It's, it's a great way of putting that and sort of comparing it to pole vault because that that's definitely another sport where, like, wow, why do people do that? Why do you want to run with a giant pole and kind of jump over there? But I guess on the flip side of that, it's that technical aspect and the uniqueness of it that, you know, really brings something to it. I mean, does it take you long to fall in love with it when you kind of, you know, pick it up, you realize that this is a talent you've got, you've got a coach saying that, hey, you could go to an Olympics if you keep going that up. I mean, I can imagine with all of that on board that you go from picking it up going, what the hell is this to, holy crap, this is a pretty amazing sport. Um, I would say for sure, like the first thing you have to have for a sport is love. Um, and hammer throwing because it takes everybody says it takes eight to ten years to even be good at the hammer throw to even like learn how to master it. So it is a hard, long craft to master. Um, but yeah, you definitely should love it. Um, it's a love hate relationship because anything that that requires skills or a repetition of skills. 
Um, you know, it depends on how your body feels. It depends on how, what your mind is feeling like. So, you know, you can be blasting one day and then the next day feel absolutely nothing and just have a horrible day. So it's, it's a hate-love relationship, but uh, for the majority of people who throw the hammer, they've been throwing it for a long time, so they've mastered the skill. So they grow to love it with anything. In terms of the training aspect when you kind of switch to it, I mean, what – as a as a hammer thrower, kind of what are the focus points you are having when you say hitting the gym and sort of outside of just obviously throwing the hammer? I mean, is it a, an upper bed, an upper body kind of strength to kind of get that power behind it? I mean, is there sort of a, a lot of the, the, the leg work kind of to get the spins going? I mean, kind of what is that focus that you've got to kind of work on? So for me, um, I used to be an athlete that focused on just absolute power, right? Being as strong as I can in the gym with Olympic lifting. So squatting, cleaning, benching, um, what have you. But, you know, as you get older, as your body changes, um, you can't get stale or else, you know, you begin to see um, negative results. So now I focus because, you know, I've already been there, done that. So I'm strong. Um, that's not, that's something that can't go away. Um, but the things that I focus on now, just besides raw power and raw strength, is um, movement, stability, um, contralateral core buildup, like different things to help me be more athletic than just strong. Because you can be specifically strong in the hammer by just doing constant repetitions at heavier weights or lighter weights. But um, it's just about your stability, your core strength 100%, because that's what's going to keep you in the game and keep you healthy in the game. So um, I think all aspects matter. You do have to be strong, but just as strong, you have to be mobile. Just as mobile, you have to have core strength um, because you're going in a rotation. Um, you have to have foot speed. Um, so yeah, they all kind of go hand in hand. It's, hammer throwing is, again, one of the other events that you have to be cross-multicultural in all types of training. So I do football training. I do CrossFit training. I do Olympic lifting. Um, so I do band work, so I do all types of things now. And and how often are you in, in the gym versus, say, out there throwing the hammer? Like, is it just kind of a weekly schedule that maybe in the lead up to an Olympic Games, it kind of gets ramps up? I mean, kind of what's an average week like for you when you're in that peak training mode? So for me, an average week would be um, having three to two sessions a day, training five days a week. Wow. So I always have a morning session just because of me being older. I don't like to just get out of bed and then do nothing for, you know, for a full day and then practice. So I'll have a morning session where I do some movements, just some core activation, body activation, just waking up, jogging, stretching, all that good stuff. And then in the afternoon, I'll have a throwing session and then I'll follow that behind a lifting session. So, yep, usually for me, it's three to two sessions a day, five days a week. The thing that from an outside of America perspective that I love about America, among many things, Gwen, that I love about America, is that the collegiate system when it comes to kind of how that, that helps you towards, you know, becoming the athletes that you become, you know, sort of the, the competitive nature within all of the sports in, in the US, which I can imagine really sort of helps drive you there because it's so vastly different to what we have here in Australia, just sort of how that works. I mean, building you up through that college system to when you were going to a US trials, becoming an alternate at the 2012 Olympics. I mean, just how helpful is that collegiate system in, in building you and your fellow athletes up? Because it, I mean, America, the success on the world stage when it comes to the Olympics is second to none. I mean, it just, I can't imagine that that doesn't help you when it comes to those elite levels. Yeah, I think the collegiate the system does help in that perspective, but only because like you're gathering and you're competing against the, the best athletes um, from different systems, um, different colleges. So you always have that um, competitiveness. Um, but the collegiate system does has its flaws. And the biggest flaw is once the kids are done, that's it. They have no support. So when you, it's the transition that kind of makes the collegiate system um a hindrance honestly in track and field in other sports it may not so much but in track and field for sure because you're competing at this high level high level high level with a lot of support you know money um room and board travel attention um health um body maintenance you have everything access to everything when you're a college student and a college athlete 
But then, you know, you go from that to absolutely nothing if you're not at the top tier athlete and most athletes aren't. So, yeah, the collegiate system is great for competitiveness, competition and um, grooming athletically. Um, but, yeah, after that, it's just like, mm. It kind of has its, <laughs> its it. sound, yeah, sort of that. <laughs> yeah. Is there something as part of, though, that, you know, you come out of that system, obviously go into a couple of Olympics and got to have that success. Are, are you able to, in a way, bring that back then on a level for some of those people who maybe don't quite go into that to, I don't know, give some advice or kind of, is there anything that you can do in that, your position to help them? Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's a lot I can do in my position, but there's not a lot of resource out there for as many athletes go into the collegiate system and the athletic system. Um, there's not enough support and resources for those who come out of that same system. Um, and that's why you see depression, um, mental health issues. That's why you see a lot of the great athletes, especially collegiate athletes, probably do one year after they're done or graduated and then you never see or hear from them again. Um, it's just not a lot of support, mentorship or resources in that transition phase. And um, honestly, here in America, the, the support and the money in track and field is non-existent compared to other sports. We have so many high-level sports. Um, and of course, we have Hollywood. So people are not trying to invest in track and fields here in America. Which, again, is such a unique thing to hear because, again, from an outside American's perspective, we look at America as such a dominant force and in track and field, you know, we see kind of the, the results come out there. But obviously it's sort of it's it's not as, as glamorous and as big but potentially there domestically as we're kind of perceiving it is to be. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, I feel like, you know, again, there there's pros and cons to every system. But... Um, to the American system, athletes here, especially field event athletes, um, they're not getting paid for what they're worth. Um, I saw somewhere on Wikipedia and Google that I was worth $5 million, and I've been looking for it ever since. <laughs> you would think wow. that I would be worth $5 million because of my achievements achievements yeah. and because of everything I've accomplished, and that's where they get the number from. But honestly, um, I, I don't make even $50,000 a year wow. and maybe not even that because I'm a hammer thrower. So yeah, it's different. On that, in terms of the competitiveness in hammer throw, particularly, you know, you're mentioning you, you become an alternate for the 2012 team. I mean, kind of what, what was sort of the, the competitive level like there? Was it, I mean, obviously the college system is very competitive as it is, but I mean, kind of what were the, the, the top girls throwing around about that time where you sort of coming through at a boom for hammer throw? I mean, kind of what was hammer throw like in the U.S. at that point? Um, in 2012, the hammer throw was, was really stacked still. Um, we still had five to six girls that were throwing over 70 meters. Um, but that year, it really only took, I want to say, 72 meters to make the 2012 Olympic team. 71, 72 meters at the time. So, you know, hammer throwing wasn't as crazy as it is in America today. But, yeah, it was it was the start of the boom for sure for us. Being an alternate for an Olympics, you, you never want to see your teammates fail or got injured or that. But, I mean, is there, is there a bit of you, Gwen, where you're kind of like, come on, like I've got a chance here. Like, oh, if a sneaky little injury comes along here, I maybe won't be too disappointed. <laughs> Hey, yeah, um, and only because I was young, you know, and eager, and I wanted it so badly. Um, what's crazy is I was the team alternate, and one of the girls that actually made the team, she did have a sore ankle. She she had injured her ankle leading up into the Olympic Games. And so, you know, the word on the street was she didn't know if she was going to compete or not. So I was just like, you know, a little part of me was like, uh, you know, if you don't want to, because you know, you've been to so many, I could always, so, you know, I stayed in shape, um, you know, I trained until after the Olympics and then I took a break, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a little part of me that really, really wanted to go, especially to London. Um, mm. But I was just happy that, you know, I was the alternate, you know, I never even thought that I could make it that far. And uh, even though for me, looking back on hindsight, I should have been on the team. But, um, yeah, it was a good experience nonetheless. Because I can imagine then that spurs you on more so for Rio, doesn't it, that you've kind of you've really gotten so close, you know, even the potential error of sort of her pulling out just before the game. So kind of do you take that experience of being that close then and just able to kind of put it then into using that effort to qualify for then 2016? Absolutely. Um, after I got so close in 2012, you know, that was that was it. So I put my head down. I got three jobs and 
you know, I trained, worked, trained, worked, trained, worked. That was my life until 2016. And what's that like then at your jobs when you sort of got to explain, I've got to go train and oh, I'm just, you know, hammer throw. And then eventually when you eventually make the team and hi, can I have some time off? Yeah, just got to go compete at the Olympics for a couple of weeks. I mean, I can imagine that's a fun little question to ask your boss. Yeah. Um, what was crazy is, um, you know, again, here in America, everybody thinks it's all glamorous and all of that. But um, again, the lack of support, especially for athletes under the Olympic umbrella is nil to none. And so um, I was working three jobs at the time. So I was delivering cookies. Um, I was working at a bookstore. Um, I was working at GNC, which is a supplement store. I was working at Dick's Sporting Goods. So I was trying to find the mean, you know, anything that I could do to, one, keep a roof over my head, um, you know, take care of my family, take care of myself, and make sure I eat so that I am able to train. So um, my days just consisted of, you know, me training in the mornings, me working all through the night. Um, insomnia cookies, I would literally get off at 3 o'clock in the morning um, and then, try, you know, try to be up by, you know, 11 o'clock the next day to go to practice. So it was kind of hard. So my bosses and the people that I worked with, they were really understanding um, because they knew what I was training for. And, you know, I always showed up to work on time. I always did my job, even if I was, you know, tired, even if I wasn't, you know, the most, the best employee of the day. Um, I still showed up. I still did my job. So anytime I did need to take off to go to competitions or to, you know, compete for the Olympic Games or Olympic trials, um, they were they were supportive. They were really supportive. And I appreciate that. Which I can then imagine when you throw that qualifying distance and you know you've booked your ticket for Rio, that just makes it even more worth it, doesn't it? That you've gone through all of that to finally achieve that dream. Oh, for sure. So after I made the Olympic team in 2016, um, I went back to work, right? So so <laughs> I, I qualified and then um, I went back to work just for a few days. And then my boss was like, okay, well, you know, you should, you should take some time off. And I was just like, yeah, you know, I just had to, you know, come up here and talk to you about trying to take this month off so I can really focus on training for Rio. So they were, they were okay with that. That's good to hear. I'm glad. It's a yeah. bit awkward if they all of a sudden said, yeah, no, we really can't spare you, Gwen. Like, we really <laughs> kind of need you. Um, you might have put that off for another four years. Okay. All right. Right. <laughs> right. Just, just, just the Olympics. But can you, can you take any moment to yourself to kind of just, I don't know, pinch yourself, kind of take that moment? I mean, does it come when you get the uniform and you've got the rings on it, you know, kind of like, like any moment there, then all of a sudden it just it clicks into gear that you are an Olympian? Oh, uh, yeah, in 2016, especially, because, you know, that was my first Olympic Games. Um, I made it. I got second place at the trials, so I was really happy about that. I had a I had a great um, performance. And, you know, when I put on the uniform, when we, you know, we went to team processing in Houston, uh, it was an amazing experience. We got so much gear. We got um, so much attention, so much love, um, media all that good stuff. We got verified on all of our social media platforms. <laughs> the blue tick. You know, all, right. You got the blue check, which everybody loves. Um, and so that, that was a great experience. Um, it really didn't come to me until when we actually touched down to Rio that I was actually going to compete in my first Olympic Games. You know, going to the tra- through the training process and the training camps and all of that, that's when it hit me. And it was just like, all right, here we go. Um, so before, you know, I was just riding the high of actually making it and then, you know, just getting all the gear and stuff like that, you know, giving it to some of my family and friends. And then, um, yeah, it got really real when we got to Rio. I'd love to know what it's like going into an Olympics in an American team, because in Australia, it's it's usually a case of you go into an Olympics, you know, there's you got your medal hopes and then. Before Tokyo, there would always be a prediction. The Australian Olympic Committee would be like, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get twelve gold, five silver, eight bronze," and then all of a sudden they're just gonna be like, "Yeah, we failed." And there's always a big, you know, talking point in the media afterwards. For for the US, to me, it's more of a case of we're gonna win eight gold, twelve silver, seven bronze on Thursday. Like it's just kind of like that's kind of how it sort of goes. Like I mean, what what are what are the expectations of the US going to an Olympics? Is it we're gonna we're gonna become on top of the medal tally? I mean, like what is that like? To, to compete for American Olympics and know that that's going to be the success that's going to come from the Games? Um, I think because America always goes into everything they do with the we're the greatest country in the world, I feel like they put no limit on account, right? So there's no limit on how many medals that one can achieve. There's no limit. Like, they, they really don't tally 
Um, of course, they have their, you know, their guesstimates in their head. But because America is filled with so many stars and so many millionaire athletes and so many, you know, it's just like the press and, you know, all these iconic athletes. Um, the real, the biggest expectation is to just do what you do. Like, you know, just go in there and do what you're capable of because, um, you know, America is the hardest team to make when it comes to Olympic games on, in most sports. So especially track and field, it is definitely the hardest team to make. So, um, yeah, I feel like the expectations aren't in your face, but they definitely put the emphasis on do what you do, do what you did to make the team. If you do what you did to make the team, then you'll definitely, you know, bring home some hardware. Um, that's just how it is. And because America is so individualized, um, it's not really a team, right? Because for track and field, again, there's so many stars, there's so many big players, and um, there's so many camps. So everybody who's make the team are coming from different camps. And so, um, you know, it's not team oriented in my in my perspective. Um, it's just, you know, everybody's about their business. Everybody's doing what they have to do to get the job done. But when you're in the village and you kind of all of a sudden are bumping into, you know, your fellow competitors or maybe when you're at the opening ceremony and you're kind of all around there, do you, I mean, getting that opportunity maybe to just rub shoulders with somebody like, hey, like what sport do you do? Oh, great, you know, and kind of have those conversations. I mean, that must be a fun part of an Olympics too to meet these athletes that maybe you will never get to associate with. Oh, yeah, for sure, especially um, – especially for Team America, like, I think that was one of the highlights of the Tokyo, uh, sorry, the Rio games for me was the overall experience in opening ceremonies, because that's when we all had to be together. We all had to sit together. We all had to march together. So um, that's when I met so many cool, um, iconic athletes, um, Clarissa Shields. Um, I met all the basketball players. They were really cool to hang out with, um, especially like Kyrie Irving. Um, of course, my favorite, um, Jimmy Butler, um, Kevin Durant, like so that that was a great moment. Um, yeah, I think, I, for me that was that was one of the highlights for sure. I, I love sort of you know hearing kind of those moments of sort of yeah that and kind of like even just hearing from people around the village like you're walking around and like oh look there's there's the same bolt there he is he's just eating his lunch <laughs> things like that like i mean it's just it's such a unique experience but i mean just again like as you're saying there like in the america team alone like hey there's there's kevin durant there's Kyrie irving it's simone biles right. cool. there they are just part of my team right. they're my teammates right <laughs> right and, and like you really don't want to be starstruck because you're like for me i'm a, i'm my favorite athlete right so I never want to be starstruck with a, about another athlete just because they make more money than me because I know that I'm just as great as them in my uh, respective sport or event. So it's just like, you know, you see them and you're just like, oh, there they are. And but you're like, but I'm an Olympian too, so they should know who I am. So, you know, it's kind of like that thing. But um, usually they're pretty cool. Most of those stars are really, really cool. Like you would never think because, you know, you see them on TV or – you know, they just have such a high profile, especially in Hollywood and here in America. But um, most of them are really, really down to earth. Going into Rio, did you set yourself a, a target? Was it a medal, uh, make the final kind of, I mean, what was sort of your target and, and, and leaving Rio kind of, uh, how, how did you feel about how everything went? Um, That's a trick question, only because um, I'm thinking of how I felt at the game. And then I'm thinking of hindsight, right? How I should have been coached or how I should have felt. Um, so in that moment in Rio, you know, my coach at the time put in my head that the the biggest thing was to make it to the finals, right? Um, just, I didn't like how he did it, but he put it in our heads that both athletes never make it to finals, their first Olympic games or their first major championship um, appearance, right? So that was, it was heavy, heavy emphasis on just make the finals, just make the finals, just make the finals. Um, going into Rio, I had one of the top marks in the world at the time. So for me, it shouldn't have been so much heavy emphasis. Now I'm looking now how I feel now as an adult. Um, I sh it shouldn't have been just so much heavy emphasis or, you know, just, you know, a, a target on making the final. Um, I should have, and we should have been more optimistic. I should have been coached more optimistically um, and more positively, I think. But um, yeah, at the time, it definitely was making the final. And um, yeah, I didn't do that. So that was a bummer. 
I was actually with two spots out. Oh, that was crazy. Well, I was, was going to say, it's, I mean, it's always, a, it's a sport of inches, isn't it? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of that close to, to, to making a, a final and, it's it's so fascinating in any of the the throwing or the the jump any of the sort of the field events really when it is literally measured by inches it kind of you know one day you're throwing a a distance that on another day would have gotten you a gold medal yet all of a sudden now it's like well that same distance has missed me out by you know a couple of centimeters from making an Olympic final. Absolutely, absolutely. The Olympic game is is the Olympic games, World Championships, those type of competitions are something that people really really don't they have no idea what they're getting into until they're in that moment. Like you can't train for that moment. It really comes with experience. And that's another thing. Um, that's another flaw from the collegiate system into let's say your system to where um, kids from Australia, if they're doing hammer throw, they get that world championship Olympic experience um, quite often because they don't have to compete against a thousand other kids who are just as good as them. You know, you're going to make world junior teams. If you have a certain mark, you're going to make an Olympic Games. You're going to make a world championship. So they always get that experience so that when they are, you know, 25, 26, they've had the experience so time and time again to where they're potentially meddling at that age. For America, because of the collegiate system, you only get the opportunity maybe once or twice and the collegiate system is nothing like, you know, world championships and Olympic games. So qualifying, the call rooms, it's nothing like it. So, you know, for me, making my first Olympic games team, I never had the experience ever in my life and nothing could duplicate it. Nothing could prepare me for it, but just getting out there and getting in that moment and, you know, trying my best to um, capitalize and execute in that moment. So with that experience and in mind, leaving Rio, kind of going through to the next Olympics, was that kind of then taking that experience and that helped you towards the, the next major competitions throughout the, the next four, well, ultimately five years, you know, the World Championships, the Pan Am Games that you were going to win a gold at? I mean, that helped you kind of more so in the competition the more you went on? Yeah, I think that in changing coaching. <laughs> um, it usually helps sometimes. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. I just, I just had to change my coaching because you know the older I got, my mindset changed, um, and I knew I just needed something different. Uh, like I said, in hindsight, going into 2020, uh, 2016, 2017, when I was making these Olympic and World Championship teams back to back to back to back, I feel like the major things that I liked was um, mental and technical coaching. Um, my coach at the time was just heavy on strength, 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 strength. Um, and that ain't going to get you a medal and that ain't going to get you to finals. So, um, besides the experience and besides the constant failures, um, I just had to switch up my mentality and switch up my culture. And how important is that mentality when it comes to hammer throwing? Like just the mental aspect of getting yourself in a zone that you are, you know, getting past everything that you, you know, leading up to it that like, I mean, are there certain activities that you can do on the mental side of things, Gwen, to really kind of focus on that and, and switch it on when it comes to a competition? Yeah, I think the mental side is probably 97% of competition. Um, the body is easy. You can build up the body. You can, you know, the body can be mundane. You can do repetitions, redundancy, time and time and time and time again. Um, it's easy for the body to feel something and to keep that stored in them uh, in itself after repetition. But the mind is the hardest thing. Um, if you do not have a sound mind, um, if you're not able to focus, if you're not able to control your adrenaline or control your environment or control how you respond to things in, um, in an intense moment or in an overwhelming moment, um, it will get the best of you and Honestly, that is still something that I'm working towards till this day, only because I came from a system where the mindset was literally um, not even focused on to a system where the mindset is literally 95% of what I need to work on. Um, so that, that's the biggest thing. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand that or know that. But when you become elite, um, yeah, your body's used to doing it, right? So it's just like, the biggest thing that people, especially in this world, we are not taught how to control our mind, how to respect our mind, how to evolve our mind. And, um, yeah, that's one of my biggest Achilles heels. And for major elite athletes, that's the thing that separates the people who meddle from the people who don't. 
Coming to Tokyo, obviously, the games are delayed by a year. Uh, now, I believe, obviously, it affects athletes on all many different levels, but uh, I believe, ultimately, it was it was a really tricky decision for you, Gwen, to kind of continue on after the, the postponement of, of, of the game, sort of what sort of led to your ultimate decision to, to go back to, to qualify for an Olympic Games and how close were you for maybe not going to qualify for 2021? Um. Yeah, it was a lot of things that um, kind of swayed me not to continue with the sport. Um, as everybody knows, I uh, protested in 2019 at the Pan American Games, and I immediately lost all my support, my financial stability, and I became America's most wanted, right? So um, just the hate, um, the lack of support, um, the immediate um, drop of funding, um, it made me want to quit the sport because here I am a hammer thrower. I already don't make even 50000 a year. Like, how can I continue to even sustain in the sport if I'm not getting paid um, for what I'm worth, what I sacrifice, my time? And I felt at the time there were more important issues in this world to come back besides throwing the ball, right? Because I knew that every time I picked up the ball and I was practicing to throw this ball as far as I could, um, somebody was dying in the streets um, at the hands of a cop who didn't care about their lives or um, by, by the system who didn't want to seek or care to seek justice because they felt like because of the color of their skin, their lives didn't matter. So um, I feel like 2019, there were more important things than sport. Um, same thing with 2020, you know, um, after the postponement of the Olympic Games, again, we were seeing so many deaths. Um, the, the, the world turned upside down um, because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, and they be start to begin to pay attention to real issues. So again, I was just like, so then why am I doing this again? Like being an athlete isn't changing anything on the ground. You know, it's not changing any type of system. It's not any, changing any type of laws. It's not protecting anybody's life. So um, that was that was a major thing that made me not want to continue with the sport. Um, already being under severely underpaid, uh, sacrificing so much time for my family and my son, who could have been, you know, a George Floyd, because he does not look like a teenage boy. He does look like a grown man, and the cop would not care about his life more than I would. Um, so yeah, it it was really hard. It was I combated a long time. Me and my coach, um, we 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 talked about a lot. We had a lot of intense conversations. Um, I talked to my friends a lot. I talked to my family a lot just about me wanting to continue to do this, um, being in the position that I was, being underpaid, being away from home, um, seeing, you know, more and more of the trauma that is going on in the world and um, nobody doing enough about it. The thing that kept me in the sport um, was a heavy talk with my mentor, Dr. John Carlos. Uh, everybody knows him as one of the athletes who protested at the Mexico 68 games with um, Tommy Smith. So Dr. John Carlos, he became, he became my mentor in um, late 2019, early 2020. And so we talked a lot, did a lot of um, projects together, um, you know, worked with a lot of companies together to, to, to combat um, social justice and civil rights. And so I, I talked to him about whether I should continue to train for the Olympic Games for 2021. Um, and he gave me some great advice. And he told me that, you know, even though my what I'm doing with the sport was not, to me, not saving lives as much as I wanted to see it, um, I did for sure have an impact on a lot of people um, because of my platform, because of the things I've done, because of the things I've said. So he told me that maintaining that platform was important because if you're high enough, um, you're visible. So everybody can see you. If you're low enough, not enough people can see you and not enough people can hear you. So um, that often really kept me in this work. Which through everything that happened with all of that, I mean, I can imagine that it would take one message from somebody who goes, thank you, Gwen. Thank you for taking a stand. Thank you for doing that to just bring bring everything that you did with that to, to light. But I'm sure you got more than one message, Gwen. I'm not saying you only got one. So uh, with every message that you would have received as support, I mean, kind of I can imagine that turns around all those negative thoughts and kind of goes, well, I'm going to use this positive energy and, and go towards that 
Olympic platform and not only do my best in my athletic side of things, but do that best for my, my social side of things as well. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think um, the constant support um, and then, you know, I began to get a little support financially, which was, you know, you know, a breath of fresh air. Um, I think, you know, being crowded and being loved by um, a family and a group of people who I knew would have my back no matter what happened to me in, in or out of the sport, no matter if I won a gold if I, or if I didn't even make an Olympic team, uh, that gave me the sense to say, okay, I can't do this because these people actually love me whether I win or fail. And that's kind of all I needed. Tokyo comes about, uh, make the final this time around, uh, finish in, in an 11th. Again, similar question before was sort of, you know, with the new coach, kind of the mindset is a, is a different goal. I mean, do you, do you leave Tokyo? I, I made the final. That's great. Or was there kind of a level of, hey, I could have walked away with a medal here? And, you know, sort of what was the mindset leaving Tokyo after the competition? Um, I really didn't get to process too much. Again, I'm thinking of the hindsight because of everything that kind of happened um, in the Olympic Village. So um, I really didn't get to process anything that happened in Tokyo because, you know, a good friend of mine, her mother passed. Um, as soon as she won an Olympic medal, um, Raven Saunders, I know the world knew about that. So, um, you know, I admittedly, I didn't even care about the Olympic Games until probably like a little week ago um, or how I performed um, because, you know, being for, there for her um, was more important at the time. And so um, now I'm processing um, the Olympic Games. When I finally got to process um, everything that happened, um, for sure, I was I was upset. Like, you know, I really, really wanted the medal. Um, I knew I had more in me. Um, but honestly, I was tired. I was exhausted every uh, Tokyo. Um, only because of everything that I had to fight and everything that I had to endure leading up to Tokyo. Um, I knew that, you know, I burned out. I burned a lot of gas. And just making the team um, was enough. And then everything that came with making the team and the, how the media attacked me, um, you know, from me being set up, you know, a lot of things that happened, it was, it was, it was quite exhausting. And so even though I made the finals and I was glad that everybody was able to watch that, um, you know, not making the podium, um, it, it was, I was kind of, I was frustrated. You know, I think about it every day and I say, I still say, damn, or I say like, fuck. Because, like, I really, really knew that I could do it. But um, I knew that, you know, I exhausted myself. Which, so um, I wasn't too mad. Well, I was going to say, you know, again, we're obviously <laughs> talking very recently after it. So it's still obviously fresh in the mind. Yeah. But, you know, with everything that you can now, I guess, push forward and, and hope to achieve with, I guess, this platform now that has been created for you, do, do you feel this is something that maybe in – 10, 15 years time. And this is not to say that you don't go into Paris and win the gold, you know, LA win the gold, but like something that say they don't happen that you can reflect and go, well, I'm an Olympic finalist that can, that can never get taken away from me. And all the good that can come from this, from the platform that again, as I said, has been out there that it will be something you can look back and be proud of. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I'm proud. I'm proud of everything that I achieved. Um, I'm proud that, you know, cause people didn't even think that I would be able to focus to make the Olympic team. Um, because of everything that I was doing with my social injustice, um, all the messages I was putting out there for athletes and for non-athletes and, um, you know, just using my platform to make sure that I let people know that they are not alone in this fight. So people didn't even want me to make the Olympic team. Um, and so, and then, you know, the whole world got to watch me make an Olympic final. So, and, and then for, for the finals, you know, it was during a time, it was a five o'clock in the morning. So not everybody got to watch. So, um, but you know, just the fact that people got to make me watch me compete, my family got to watch me compete. Um, I feel like I did my part. Anytime I showed up on that screen or anytime I was talked about, they were talking about what I wanted to do for, to save people's lives. Um, and that was important. Me just being there and people just really, really putting emphasis on my passions to protect and to save people's lives, um, that was important. That was, you know, that was that was the goal. Before we, we wrap up, with this, we'll change tack in a moment and get to some fun questions to close it out. Just just on that, kind of what is, what's your hope now, Gwen? Like kind of what 
are you hoping to to be able to achieve with sort of what you were just mentioning there kind of like what are the, the steps you're going to be taking sort of moving forward with everything that you're obviously uh discussing and standing for um so i don't want to put up too much but um i am currently working on a few projects um and ultimately i want to create some stuff to where i can go to these corporations and I can go to these people who say they want to help support black and brown communities and actually facilitate so that we can actually see change. Um, Because I feel like being an elite athlete or being, you know, being, you know, one of the best athletes in the world is not enough because we have a lot of those. Um, I feel like now we need to leverage, right? We need to, to change laws. We need to work with people who are social activists who are on the ground and are really affecting people's lives and collaborate. So um, that's what I plan on doing. Um, I'm back in school getting my master's um, at Tennessee State University. So um, Coach Coach Cheesebro gave me a chance and opportunity to, you know, get some more education so that I can start doing what I want to do and really, really saving people's lives and us seeing proof of it. So watch this space, basically, you're saying. Keep 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 an eye out to see all this stuff that, that, that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. One thing, too, before I get to the questions that I, I loved reading, I believe before each competition you write a letter to yourself to read between throws. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about this because I love the idea of this. Um, so basically, because I'm I'm naturally an overthinker, right? I overanalyze, I overthink. Again, that's one of my Achilles heel because the mind is so important in competition. And um, for me, I just, I'm not comfortable with like, you know, just let go and throw, right? So I, you know, I like to think. So um, in competition, um, I usually write a letter to myself to just like give myself just some cues and some encouragement so that I'm thinking of nothing else but those those cues or those points of encouragement. Um, for me, it's just something that settles my mind because you give me an opportunity. I'm going to think of a thousand things before I think of one. Um, so that just gives me the opportunity to just think of one or two things instead of the a thousand that my brain often likes to go to. <laughs> <laughs> what What's the best thing you've ever written yourself then that that's literally you've looked at halfway through and gone, oh, shit, that, that's brilliant. I'm really good at that. This is going to help me now for the next throw. Um, honestly, the best thing that I've ever written to myself was remembering who I am. Remember who you are. Um, because I know if I do that, um, can't nobody beat me. Nobody can beat me if I know who I am and if I if I execute and have confidence in myself. I really like this this trend that we're seeing now with field athletes because we saw it with our Australian high jumper Nicola McDermott. She won the silver and between every throw, uh, every jump I should say, she would sit down and write in a diary. That's what she would do. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. Yeah. And, like, everyone in Australia was fixated by, like, what is she doing? This is amazing. So there's a secret here I'm seeing, Gwen, that, that field athletes need to just write in diaries, write notes to themselves and everything along those lines, and it obviously helps you out a lot. Yeah, for sure. Because, again, it's just it's the, it's the situation. It's the pressure. It's the you you want to you want to do something so bad, right? You want to win. You want to achieve so bad. But in, and instead of thinking of just that, you have to think about the process or the steps or how you felt or, you know, what you should just focus on and then the rest will take care of itself. And I feel like, you know, that's kind of where I failed in Tokyo because, you know, I was so excited that, you know, um, I made it to the finals, but I just didn't, I wasn't disciplined enough to make sure that my mind didn't want it so bad because I wanted it so badly. I wanted to get on the podium and I wanted to show the IOC what's up. I wanted to piss people off because the world hated me anyway. You know, I wanted to do all these things and I forgot to think about the process or the feeling or just a few things to do and let the rest take care of itself. So what I thought she did was brilliant. You know, she thought about the process. She wrote down how she felt. She wrote down what she needed to work on and then she just got through it. So that's it's a great technique. It's something that really, really helps the mind. Again, the mind, the mind, the mind, the mind. It made me want to start writing diaries more. Can I just point that out. Like I may have gone down to the local, uh, you know, store and bought myself a diary and gone, well, you help right. me. <laughs> Maybe I need to do that yeah, in between yeah. interviews here on the show. Like, uh, dear Ben, learn how to ask better questions. Uh, something on those lines. Um, now, right. Gwen, we close we close out every interview, a series of fun questions uh, to end it on a lighter note. 
Uh, now, we're a co-Australian-Canadian uh, podcast and, and we get these questions from a Canadian questionnaire that they ask their athletes ahead of Rio and, and Pyeongchang, kind of a bit of a get-to-know-you. Now, I always like to try and get an athlete from the same sport. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, Canada does not have a, a hammer throw questionnaire on here, so I've had to go with a javelin thrower. So it's the closest okay. I could get. So... Uh, Sort of related, but uh, and again, as always, there is a drawing. Like, if you want to do some extra homework, you can draw some pictures if you really want to. Uh, no pressure, you don't have to, it's not a requirement. But uh, if you do want to add that, the first question I have for you here today, Gwen, what is your favorite ever Olympic moment? Uh, my favorite ever Olympic moment. You can say your own too. Like you can always, uh, you know, mention any of your own Olympic achievements as well. Uh, yeah, I would have to. I would have to. I can only speak for my own. Um, honestly, I would say, you know, being clutch. You know, um, I've never been clutch before, and I made the Olympic final on my last throw. Um, so, and I, you know, I was what top ten going into the finals. I never did that before. Um, so yeah, I think that was my favorite moment. Great answer. I like it. If you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Of course, Africa. Come on, the motherland. Yeah. Well, they're, they're um, the only never continent been in Africa never before. Yeah, never. Exactly. And so that's a big problem. Um, we need to get that together. Of course, Africa. Any any particular part of Africa that you think would be good? Or maybe just have a continental bid, kind of just share all the events around the entire continent? You know, I think the continent is too big for that. However, uh <laughs> It doesn't matter. Wherever we can have it, it needs to be done. Yeah, I remember gotta, when, when, when Rio won the Olympics, their big pushing point was they had that map of the world and they showed like where all the Olympics had been and it was like South America, none. So now Africa's the only one without it. Uh, so, yeah, good good marketing yeah. point there. Um, mm-hmm. In your spare time, what do you most like to do? Oh... Uh... Honestly, I like to joke on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I like to joke on Twitter. I love Twitter. Um, it's one of my favorite social media platforms only because anytime I go on there, I know I'm going to laugh at something. Um, you know, the world is a crazy place, but Twitter, you can always find something that brings you a little bit of joy. Great. I like that answer. Um, what is the weirdest <laughs> instruction a coach ever gave you? The weirdest instruction a coach has ever gave me? Uh, that's a hard one. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. To me, I would say my old coach used to always tell me to, um, he used to tell me a cue, right? And the cue was always like, go left. But he never explained what that meant, never explained what the purpose was, never explained really how to do it. Like, he would just be like, go left. And he would think that people would know what that meant. <laughs> and I'd just be like, logically, bro, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that's the one that, like, you know, I heard a lot. I don't know if it was the weirdest I've ever heard, but I've heard that so many times and I begin to hate that, like, go get left. What does that mean? What does like, that mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> did, did, did anyone not have the courage to go? Hey, hey, coach, uh, go left. What, oh, what yeah. do you What do you mean? Oh yeah, but he couldn't explain it because he wasn't a hammer thrower. So you know, you know how that goes. I, 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 I had would, to get a new coach. <laughs> I, I would assume that in the sport of hammer throw, yeah, go left's a bit vague. Um, you know, you kind of go left, you're going right, you're going left, you're like you're going around in circles, like it's not like you're exactly. going one direction. Wow, exactly. Go go left. I'm like, okay, go bro. left. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite workout? Oh, I think my favorite workout is my morning workout. It's my my sorry, my morning routine. So a nice little run followed by some stretching, a little bit of yoga. I love my morning routine. Sounds good to me. That's a good way to start the day. Um, if you could have yeah. lunch with any one person, who would it be? If I can have lunch with any one person, I think I would want to have lunch with, um, I would say, a younger Muhammad Ali. 
Ah. Like in his in his glory days, you know, when he was Cassius he was Clay days, of, maybe. Yeah, yeah, wow. when he was full of spark and spunk. Um, just to, you know, pick his mind, to just to understand his charisma, his um go getter mentality. Um, because you know, he was really unapologetic. So, you know, I love that. Great answer. I like that one. Um, what is your favorite sandwich? You know, I don't eat sandwiches because I don't like bread. Um, I would say my favorite wrap would be the, a grilled chicken wrap. Ooh, good one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like that at all. Um, if you could have any superpower, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, this is a hard one. Um, any superpower? Mm, if I had any superpower, I don't know. I would want to. I would want to have all the powers because I would want to change the world. I want to. I would want to change how people think about the world, how we view the world, how we live in the world. Um, you know, just the money, the money and hunger and all of that around. Like, I would want to just change everything to where everybody has everything that they need, and all we gotta do is chill. Like, we don't have to live our lives working and struggling and paying bills. Going so whatever left. power that would be, right? Going <laughs> left. So whatever power that would be. To, to like make sure the world is truly, truly equal. Like literally everybody in this world has the same as everybody in this world. Um, yeah, I would do that. These are these are the deepest answers I think we've ever gotten on the show, Gwen. <laughs> Jeez, this is this is great. I'm loving it. Um, I, I, I want to kind of see the deep answer for this one. The best candy in the world is? Twix. Are you serious? Left <laughs> Twix, right Twix. Didn't even, didn't even hesitate straight away. <laughs> no I hesitation. Love that. None at no all. Hesitation. Straight to it. Um, as a kid, who are your favorite sports team? Um, as a kid, um, for sure the the Bulls, Chicago yes. Bulls. Um, of course, because my father loved the Lakers, I was forced to like them. Um, and well, not as a kid, but as a young adult, the Boston Celtics for sure. Basketball. Wow, you were spread all out yeah. there. You got it all oh, the yeah. bases covered. <laughs> yeah. Did you stick to one? Have you still got one today that you just stick with? Um, wherever Kevin Durant goes, that's where I go. All right. So, so you're on the Nets bandwagon right now. So I'm on the Nets. Yeah, just got goes, Patty Mills. Patty Mills. You can have an Australian join the team. There, you're welcome. Bronze yeah. medalist. So, uh, you're, you're welcome. You, you, you look yeah. after him, please. <laughs> um, your favorite sports movie is my favorite sports movie. I really don't have one of those. I would say just because it was popular, of course, you know, like remember the Titans or something like mm-hmm. that. But I really don't like to watch sport movies because, again, I'm my favorite athlete. So, yeah, that's really a, when they do a movie movies. on you, Gwen, then you can watch your movie, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You know. I would probably watch it one time and then. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's, it. that's enough. I know the story. Yeah, I don't it. need to that's keep it. reliving it. Um, right. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh, Africa somewhere. Somewhere that's never been discovered is by myself, me and my kids and my family. And yeah, I want to move. I want to live somewhere that's never been discovered. Wow. Ken, the deep answer you went, geez, come back everywhere. I want to hear these answers. Like, there's a thousand more questions here. It's like I'm fascinated by everything you say. Um, when, you, when you were little, I love this question. When you were little, what was one thing you always thought? Uh, when I was little. One thing I always thought, mm. I always thought about eating. Man, when I was little, <laughs> I used to eat my ass off. <laughs> I used to always think about food. <laughs> it's, so a, food it's a perfect man. answer. I love it. Man, wow. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like, Mom, when's dinner ready? Come on. Like, it's always right. the same question, isn't man, it? Man, that's, that's, all, that's all I thought about. And it always and it always feels like like even if you've got a set time every night for dinner, it just it seems to get longer and longer. You get home from school, it's like what three o'clock, and you're like, God, dinner's not till six. Like, God, I'm gonna die, aren't I? <laughs> right, right. It's always that way. Living around the meals. Um, now this is the last one, and I always am intrigued for this one because it, I don't know. Sometimes people just have this ready to go, and other times you, you don't. What is your favorite joke to tell? <sighs> Uh, I really, 
I don't tell jokes. I really don't tell jokes. I'm petty. You know, I'm real. I'm a petty person. Like, I like to say slick, smart stuff, especially on Twitter. Um, but I really don't tell jokes. I don't okay. tell jokes. Well, this is this is the part now where I say, Gwen, what's your Twitter handle? What's your Instagram handle? Where can people follow and see the, see the entertainment that you can get from following you on Twitter? <laughs> so people can follow me at Miss Berry Throws, M-Z Berry Throws. Um, it's on all my platforms. So Instagram, Twitter, those are my two. So yeah, follow me. MZ Barry Throws. That simple. Gwen, I have to say, it has been an absolute pleasure to to learn about your journey, everything you're fighting for out there. And as I said at the end, some of the best, uh, no, not some of the best answers I think we've ever gotten in those uh, questions <laughs> right at the end. But uh, best of luck with everything moving forward. We're going to keep an eye on you very closely, whether that's uh, Paris 2024 or everything else that you're fighting towards. I'm just saying as well, 11 years away from a, an Olympics in Australia. So if you've never been here before, you've got a perfect excuse. So 11 years time to come <laughs> <back>. <laughs> I think about it. I think about it. And a massive thanks there to Gwen for her time. I'm just thinking about going left now. What can I say? I, I don't even know where to begin. It doesn't make sense, but somehow it's something that I want to keep saying in my life. So maybe that's our new closing for this episode or this show, I should say. It's go left. So we'll try using that. We'll see how that sticks. Uh, Big thanks to Gwen, obviously. uh, Pleasure to have her on the show, and uh, we thank her very much for her time. Stay tuned. Plenty more interviews to come. We've got some great athletes. We've got some great guests coming your way as we get closer and closer to Beijing, of course. Obviously, we're alternating and sort of mixing up with some summer, some winter, kind of going over both sides of the Olympics there. And if you want to go back and listen to any of our older episodes and stay up to date with the new episodes as we do drop them, Look for Off The Podium on all good podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. You know them. Subscribe. While you're there, leave us some rating. We'd like to hear some feedback from you. And while you're on there looking up Gwen's Twitter and her Instagram, why not search for Off The Podium? You can find us on both Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as well. Stay up to date with what we're coming up there as well as leaving some messages. We'd like to hear what you think, kind of uh, who you want on the show, anything along those lines. We'd, uh, We'd love to hear from you. So Off The Podium. Or you can just Google Off The Podium. I'm sure we're there as well. Uh, if not, then we'll contact Google and we'll be put on there for some reason. Uh, big thanks again to Gwen. Big thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium. And remember, go left.